0: And welcome to the latest edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar Show. A very special edition for two reasons. First, as uh, you'll see if you're reading this on the CityWire website, or listening to it rather, you'll see some physical evidence that we are all together in the same room, having conducted all previous editions remotely from our homes. And that's great. The second difference is we're not going to go through sectors this time. It's halfway through the year and the team. That is Angus Foote, Nisha Long and Frank Talbot, who are with me, are going to just have a look back at the first half and, and come up with some some thoughts and, and look forward. I mean, it's a half where there's so much to talk about. Uh, we've had meme stocks. We've had the reflation trade. We've had the end of the reflation trade, the rise of value, uh, growth making a comeback, uh, crypto. Uh, and uh, so absolutely no shortage of things to talk about, and I'm going to go to Frank first.
1: Yes, yeah, been uh, thanks. It's been a fascinating period, hasn't it? I mean, I'm actually looking back over the whole podcast. We started this in April, am I right? Thinking that something like that, April May of 2020. So much has changed. You know, the the crisis was so different to the previous crisis. It's so brief. You know, compared to the credit crisis, where assets took years to get back to where they were beforehand. It, equity terms almost everything is above its pre-credit crisis peak and that's slightly different in fixed income but certainly in equity markets it's, it's it's been a good period for all assets whether you were value or growth everything has risen um, so investors have done surprisingly well out of it despite how you know, obviously trying the pandemic has been um, you've got exceptions like the FTSE uh, you know there's structural issues why that isn't above its peak but uh, nevertheless you know really fascinating time one of the things which I think categorized it for me or sort of Characterize it rather as the flows into emerging markets have been really interesting over this period. There was that time where China was doing phenomenally well uh, in terms of its equity market returns and its ability to contain the virus did very well and you know, jumped 100% in, in a very short space of time. Um, but the money going into EM is still coming into EM. And I find that fascinating because you talked about the inflation trade, growth is now back on the table. And you know, there was that worry how emerging markets gonna deal with long COVID and the, the issues that that's gonna have on on their economies. But nevertheless, and that's even in the US though, that money's coming in. It's very rare to see investors in the US investing in emerging markets. I think that tells you what you need to know about what they think of their domestic economy, despite you know the expectation that it's gonna lead the global recovery. Um, China, got to talk about it super exciting time for investment in China uh, you've got that moved from a tertiary to, to sorry yeah tertiary to, to a primary rather to tertiary service-based economy uh, and that was a hindrance in performance in the last decade it was one of the reasons why it was very much yo-yoing up and down but now you've come out of it and you've got world-leading companies in China that show very little sign of you know letting up in the, in the next 10 years this is very much China's decade to emerge as the dominant force in in-world business and it's inexorable possibly a little scary uh but nevertheless from an investment standpoint the long-term implications of that are very enticing the upside is huge it's still so untapped same same story in india big flows into india amazing performance of the stock market obviously hit really hard in the pandemic you know, harder than than most if not all countries in the world um, you, But but the same time you had those reforms that moody put through, uh, Modi rather, put through uh, before the crisis started. They were really painful. They were really tough for the country to go through. But they've made it a much easier place to do business. And that's why it's attracted so many people to invest there relative to, to how it used to be. And they want to be better. They want to be much easier. They had that historical like you know, baggage of being difficult, bureaucratic, and they want to get past that. And they want to be like a global player, just like China is in many
2: ways. Can I pick up on a couple of things you said, Frank? Firstly, about money coming into emerging markets. I know, Nisha, you're going to talk about what the big banks are doing, which I think is really interesting in that context. Um, But also, I put together our uh, regular ESG newsletter. And what's really interesting, in the context of what you're saying about emerging markets or what we've for, for a long time called emerging markets, and probably that's a redundant and outdated term now, but a lot of the Asian countries in particular have become incredibly active On the regulatory side around esg and sustainability and all of these things that they were seen as perhaps lagging on 18 months two years ago so whether that is a reflection of their experience of the pandemic or whether it is just a reflection of the fact that these are more dynamic economies than the so-called developed world i think that's a really interesting trend um blackrock last week or the week before applied for a license to sell their first mutual fund in china a balanced fund, so that I think is a very interesting development. And then the other thing I was going to say, again in the context of China, I don't know if anyone's been watching the football, but a lot of the hoarding, the advertising hoardings around the pitch. Bearing in mind this is the European Championships, the advertising around the pitches an awful lot of it is Chinese companies, yeah, yeah and it, and a lot of it is in Chinese. Yeah,
1: it's it's, it's extremely noticeable. I mean, obviously football is is a global sport and watched widely in China. Um, But, yeah, coming back to your your point about ESG, uh, what was it again? Remind me.
2: Well, it's the fact that the Chinese... uh, Yeah, that's right. Sorry. Not just the Chinese. I mean, you've got... uh, There's a very interesting um, phenomenon of... So the Hong Kong regulator, for example, very active around ESG and sustainability. uh, But that Hong Kong punches above its weight, really, as a regulator, because Hong Kong is sort of the access point for global capital into mainland China enterprises. But my point really was that Asia... Go back, go back 18 months, two years certainly, was seen as not that interested in sustainability, lagging what we in the you know, developed Western Europe were doing. Now, Asia seems to be setting the pace, and those Asian regulators are really, uh, uh, you know, I think, ahead of the game yeah. On, yeah. on what they're doing around ESG regulation.
1: Certainly, the asset managers are talking up that they can find ESG-worthy companies in emerging markets, and it's difficult to tell whether that's just chatter because it, it, it ties into to where the money's gone and where the interest is at the moment and whether or not that's actually the truth and it's interesting to hear what you say about the regulators actually you know getting on board and actually being
0: but you, you mentioned the SG and China in the same sentence and, and you know all sorts of alarm bells goes off you know uh it's a particularly repressive government uh you know the the G is pretty pretty ropey and you ask Asset managers, you know, what about China and ESG and, and so on? And the yeah. answer tends to be, well, they've elevate, you know, they've lifted billions of people out of poverty over the last 20 years. Isn't that something? But yeah,
2: well, I, I guess I've made the classic mistake of talking about ESG, as a, as, of using the collective term. Probably in Asia when we talk about ESG, we're talking about environment and climate. And being very active around that, you're right, doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of the social and the governance aspects. So so maybe I should qualify what I said by saying it, it's really climate where they're driving things.
3: Yeah, I think also within the ESG categories, I think with China and Asia, I think two years, they're still lagging in my eyes about two years to the developed world, especially in the S and the governance as well. And the social side, it's only started to pick up really, well, a lot in the Western world now, especially after the COVID um, pandemic so i think there's still a lag there yes it is environmental uh, which is you know shooting with the climate changes and the regulations they're putting forwards for environment um, mm. in asia but you know s and g i would say, still say they're still lagging 18 months two years to where we are today in the western world so i think that's Point taken the, we I fell in. I up. fell into the simplest <laughs> trap around
2: ESG terminology. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad.
1: I'm glad you backed that up. Didn't didn't, didn't want to say it. Thanks, Nish. Uh, but yeah, that that whole explosion of ESG awareness has been, you know, phenomenal. Just picking up on the E, decarbonisation is going to be the biggest structural change. You know, maybe it's hyperbole, but since the industrial revolution to how how we function as a planet and how we use our resources, and it's going to touch every industry, regardless. A 20 30 year thing, and that's why. There's so much asset sort of flooding into this space. Look at the ecology sector. Ecology went from being pretty niche and obscure. You've now got sort of three or four funds from the likes of Pictet, and BNP, mm. that are among Europe's largest equity portfolios almost overnight. So, yeah, gonna be, it's going to be a bumpy road. It's not going to be a 45-degree line upwards. But the world is moving that way. There's n- we, we can't stop it. And, and investing in it is, you know,
0: is prudent. It was interesting. I, something I never thought of yesterday. I was talking to a, a U.S. equity income manager who uh, loves income, loves dividends, obviously big into oil stocks, uh, U.S. oil stocks because they're just paying phenomenal. Some of them are double-digit returns. So I said, "Hold on, you know, that's great uh, for you know your next few years' income, but they're going to they're going to you know the world is decarbonising. Aren't these things aren't these companies going to a dead end?" And he said, "Well, yes, they are, but." Uh, you know, in Europe, where a lot of energy companies are transforming, you know, you've got Shell, they're going electric and going to green rent, they're not doing that in the States. They're just simply stopping drilling. And that means they've got absolutely oodles of cash that they're going to return to shareholders. You know, he so like, said it's like it's like the biggest closing down sale you've ever seen. So, you know, I think that gets him around his his, his ESG things because they're producing less oil, they're digging, digging under fewer oceans, but it's great for his shareholders, you know. Oh, that's interesting.
1: There's still such a long way to go, but that decarbonisation of dirty sectors is going to be a, a big thing going forward. And you think about, like, you know, net zero oil company, I mean, how does that even work? What does that even look like? They're, they're selling off chunks of assets, you know, stuff that they're not going to, mine or refine or other and it, it's yeah I think it's going to be fascinating to see how they survive what the business model is for investment in those areas going forward in the next 10 years
3: I think as I alluded to in the last podcast we did on natural resources sector c- covering that is that they can't we still need you know some of those resources that they are drilling for or mining you know their natural resources that we need gold platinum you know in lithium. EV cars, lithium all of this stuff we still need so they have to be extracted somehow. Somebody isn't mm. going to go there with their hands. But then the health and safety issue comes in, mm. the S of ESG. So it's you know, yeah, it's not it's, it's not going to be instant, and, and, no, and maybe and maybe
1: it all goes private in order in order to do that. We as you say, we still need this stuff in order to function. We're not going to. But also to Richard's
2: overnight. point about oil, you, you, there is this weird transitional blip. You look at cars, for example. Uh, my wife was talking to the the, the the car the supplier of the car that she currently drives about trading up. And actually, what they, what's left on the finance for that car is less than she could get if she sold it privately in the open market because there's huge demand for second-hand cars because nobody wants to buy a new car because they don't know what's coming down right. the pipe in terms of you know regulation around emissions infrastructure around you know electricity development so, of the technology exactly so nobody wants to buy something brand new now that's going to be obsolete or regulated into an expensive liability in two years another big factor in that though
1: is the semiconductor shortage that's been a big yeah, big part absolutely. of it particularly in automotive industry so yes that people can't afford new cars because they're uncertain about what the future holds but at the same time there aren't as many new cars being produced you want to buy a new car today the lead time is sort of six nine months and and that certainly wasn't the case going into the pandemic it might be three months or two months mm. uh, so it's, it's changed dramatically and that's why the secondhand car market globally is booming. And who's yeah. going
0: to ramp up the semiconductor capacity?
1: I mean, they're all trying to ramp it up. I mean- I, But re- which country? China. And, and, and Korea, you can't yeah. really rule them out. Samsung mm. is such um, a massive- The US player. are also Taiwan. doing the yeah. same
3: thing as well, because they don't want to rely on China or Asian countries. They want it all built in house. I think it's Texas Instruments as well, one of the companies that's trying to ramp up production. But that was when um Trump was in as well. So I'm not sure what Biden's doing on that, but- I know, think he's doing the same thing.
0: Yeah. You
2: know. no, I think,
1: yeah, no one they're, they're
0: wins crazy. votes saying oh, we're going to buy more Chinese semiconductors. Yeah, so, so, what yeah. should my wife do with her car then, Frank? I'm just trying to process all that information. Oh, it's really difficult. How many years <laughs> has she had it? You know, what, what's <laughs> what, what's what's it worth today?
1: If if you go electric and you, you, your car's worth nothing, maybe lease it for 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 a time. I know we have a company scheme. I guess. Yeah, we do um, electric but, uh, Yeah, I think um, it's it's a very difficult question. It's one I think about a lot myself. Electric vehicles, are my specialist subject. You got one. Uh, I have a special subject on electric, yeah, electric vehicle. Uh, I don't have an electric vehicle. No, I'm ICE, internal combustion engine, so I'm still polluting the planet, um, which which I feel bad for. But as you say, the technology is going to move on so quickly. The range of these cars, things have changed dramatically. Tesla's lead in almost every area has been caught up to. Um, they're still more efficient with their battery technology. but... The, the things that you care about, you want your electric vehicle to go as far as your petrol vehicle was and you want to be able to refill it or rather repower it in the same amount of time would have taken you at the pump. And until we get to that point, which we are approaching, obviously you've got government legislation across Europe particularly that's going to mandate the fact you can't buy a new vehicle after 2030, 2035, depending on your country. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a tough time. So uh, I have no answer, but maybe.
3: Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I have been thinking about getting the EV car. You know, it's, it's just you know simple, should do that. But around my area, there's no infrastructure for it. There's no charging points, so I'm not going to start parking the car which I have now outside my house, five roads down, because I can't. I don't have a charging point. So that, in a way, is putting me off. I'm sure that's a lot of people as well.
0: Install yeah. one at your house and and rent it out to people. Uh, there we are, secondary <laughs> source of income. <laughs> Well, but it's interesting, yeah, isn't it? Yeah.
2: I, I think, I mean, to t- to both what you've said, Nisha and Frank, it it's it's it, it, it rams home the point, doesn't it? Look, everybody wants to do the right thing, but we don't want to fundamentally change our lifestyle. Definitely, I the thing it could bring it back, sort of more to investment,
1: though, is that who how, how can you pick the winners in electric vehicles? That is a real challenge. And I, I I made made a case the other day that I think China probably can do pretty well out of this, one of the world leading electric vehicle companies will come from china and not just sold to chinese people you know there's um Xiaoping, there's uh, oh god i'm on the spot there are there are other names of, of companies that i can think of it honestly is my specialist subject uh but it, it's it's going to be difficult to pick the winners mm-hmm. and there may be you know, some breakthrough in batch of technology that completely undermines leads that companies have if you go back to the beginning of the dot com when that started the the biggest companies then versus now in the tech world it's a very different list you pretty much just got amazon in there um, so, it's the shake up. It's tough for fund managers to pick the winners.
0: Right. But they're having a go. Uh, so, moving on swiftly uh, to Nisha, because Nisha's going to tell us what the private bankers are doing and uh, in terms of their asset allocation plans.
3: Yeah. So, we, um, well, my colleague Margarita Kirikkozy, she does put together um, a publication called Super Allocators, where she speaks to the private bank CIOs to look at their allocations going into next quarter so it is a forward-looking um, publication and it's quite interesting it's almost like a crystal ball so the flows that you see or the overweights or underweights that they've gone in particular sectors three months later it will be in the retail market you know that's how um, the way I've seen the trend um, flow um, but some of the findings from this time around for Q3 so going into Q3 and their allocations one of them is real estate in Alternatives has really divided them. So some are underweight, a lot of neutral and overweights as well. And gold as well has divided the pack. Um, in Q1, most of the funds in the gold sector were at the bottom, but in Q4 last year, they were at the top. So if you've got this up and down going from that. And European equities, now this is where we've seen a shift from the pi- private bank CIOs. European equities, they're now overweight, and last um, quarter, they were you know, neutral to underweight. And that's from moving from U.S., where they overweight last um, quarter in the U.S., and now they're moving forward to go in an underweight position or neutral positioning. So you can see European equities have started to be quite bullish on European equities.
0: Um, and how do they explain this, that the brilliant companies now emerging in Europe or...? Uh, valuation grounds? I
3: think it's valuation grounds as well, because I think with the US, especially with the FANG stocks, but most of the stocks in the S&P 500, now with the growth rally that we did see, the valuations have skyrocketed. The S&P 500 hit its new high. You know, It was in June, um, well, in Q2, it hit another high. And if you look at that, and some of the valuations you do start questioning around that, one point I do want to make about the... um, U.S. market is the small um, and mid-cap, so the Russell 2000 value. So the t- two of the top stocks in that index at the moment, the top stock is GameStop and the third mm-hmm. is AMC. So that just shows you, you know, if you are investing in these type of indices or the small mid-cap value, um, value indices in the Russell, it's look at what you're investing in because mm-hmm. it's the meme stocks. It's, it's crazy. Do you, do you know,
2: <laughs> I, I was talking uh, in a, a couple of days ago to um, somebody who runs a large asset management firm, and he was talking about how they use in their investment process uh, natural language processing systems, it's an AI system that looks at the language and it can read 10,000 company reports in a minute or whatever it is. And uh, he was saying that if you look at Wall Street Bets, which is what drives the whole Reddit meme, phenomenon. Coming to that as a lay person or even as a, as a conventional investment person, the language they use on those boards, it, it's all, it's all unintelligible to a normal person. It, they almost have their own language. Uh, and he had taken his natural language processing system and applied it to Wall Street bets. And in doing so, they'd managed to identify stocks to avoid because they were being picked up. The stocks which were, people were going crazy about on Reddit for, uh, for non fundamental reasons were being identified by this language processing system and allowing him and his firm to avoid them. So I just, that, that's,
0: <laughs> it's
2: almost like sort of technology eating itself.
0: But wouldn't, yeah, on those grounds, wouldn't he have missed out on game stock?
2: Well, you say missed out. I suppose that depends. I mean, we're back there to your old discussion around trading versus investment, yeah, yeah, aren't you? Yeah. You know, I mean, yes, you can make money on we probably shouldn't get into Bitcoin again, but you can make money on almost anything that's moving if you're trading in and out at the right price. But it doesn't mean you want to hold it for 10 years and put it in your pension.
3: I think there's an evolution of um, portfolios as well. Um, there's a graphical. I can't remember where I saw this. But the holding period of some of the stocks, ten, going back 10 years, was probably about five years on average. And now is something like one or two years. So that just shows you the you know, flip around in you know, the trading that's happening. So is that something that we're going to continue to see? So with AMC and with GameStop, for example, some of these um, indices or index tracker funds, they will have to include GameStop and AMC. So it's inflating it yet again and it's putting you know these kind of stocks back on you know people's eyes basically just to see that but i don't think um they are rebalanced yearly so you're stuck with them you know for that amount of time so if they drop heavily the whole index is going to drop you know quite strongly so it is i don't know it's weird times with for investments i think
0: Another advert for active management coming it up It is, there. absolutely. Yeah. Portfolio yeah. turnover has been pretty high across the industry, though, during yeah. this
1: period, as you'd expect. Massive inflection point. Prices drop. Opportunities are there. And we've seen that across the board. I've talked in previous weeks about in the value space, you could have whole portfolios rotated. Maybe not 100% turnover rates, so everything in a year, but 50% is, is a massive number. Probably not that high again, but certainly higher than it had been in the past. That's... I've got no data to back that up, but that's the way it feels when you look at these portfolios. Things have changed pretty quickly, obviously, during the last 16 months. Yeah,
2: that's an interesting point. But I think it would probably be an interesting piece of analysis to, to do, to go back and look at our uh, the, the the consistent outperformance we've highlighted over the past, certainly over the period we've been doing this podcast, and, and, and probably over the, the, the entire period we've been doing this job, um, and look at whether the... Know, those those consistent outperformers tend to be the buy and hold managers, don't they? Mm, absolutely. Yeah, they, they absolutely do tend to be, yeah, because they're looking at the long-term
1: structural change, of which, you know, ESG's a big one. Uh, so, yeah, the opportunities are, are numerous.
3: Yeah. There's one thing I do is not look at my pension portfolio that often. Just in case I keep switching, because it is a buy and hold, it's just... I bought those managers or those funds for a reason, leave them be, you know, and... Seriously, and don't log on to I well, do... M- most, not not that often, no, oh. not at all. I did that at the beginning when I first started investing and that was the biggest mistake I could have made. Because I did sell out of some funds which weren't doing that well. But if I held them for 10 years, they, they would have skyrocketed. So... Yeah, you know, I think your so. influence
1: rubbed off on me there actually, <laughs> because originally I used to look at it quite a lot, but now I look at it quite a lot, but I don't make any changes. Well, I, so I, it is I, buy and hold, I'm but I'm same. just observing Observe,
3: yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. Well, That's yeah. interesting. Great. Well, I rarely great at sound it. attitude. Though. Well, then <laughs> great. No, I mean like, it's, it's an interesting point. I, I mean I look at it when I see something that triggers a, a thought. So if you, if I see something that alarms me around a manager that I know I yes. hold, mm-hmm. then I will. At least think about doing something. Yeah. But but fortunately, that's relatively unusual.
3: Yeah, if a manager changes on the fund, I definitely look and quite often look as well. Yeah, just to see how that fund's doing. um, Succession, you know, has it worked? Have you got something in place? And then decide. But I think that's what most fund selectors out there that we talk to do anyway, hopefully.
0: just uh, Just before we leave your private bank yeah. survey or margaritas... Uh, It might just be worth explaining, there's probably people listening to this who don't know quite what private banks do, so they have these allocations and then they take these to the clients and say, this is how I'm going to fix your portfolio.
2: Yeah, I think it's more, so the people we're talking to here are the CIOs of the private banks, so typically the big private bank will have a fund selection unit that will select the individual funds that go into the portfolio within certain asset classes. But the CIO, amongst other things, of the private bank, and and it's important to differentiate between the CIO of a private bank and the CIO of an asset manager, because it's quite a different role. So the CIO of the private bank will be saying, you know what, I think we should be more heavily invested Mm -hmm. in Japanese small caps. They will then say to the fund selection team, find me the best Japanese small cap managers. The fund selection team will probably already have those recommendations you know, on standby, as they will in any, any asset class. But that that's it's that allocation call, really, that we're mm, talking about it's, here. It's
3: more strategical um, asset allocations, geographical, you know, the main areas. So, and these are, you know, they have a lot of money going in, you know, the investing, it's 100 million, it's, you know, it's not tiny amounts of money. So you are no, looking I mean, at institutions huge. that, yeah. on behalf of institutions, they're investing. So it's huge amounts of money. And it's those calls huge. that they make... They have to make them right, otherwise you're losing a shedload of money. So
2: They're the top of the decision-making yeah, tree. Absolutely. They're saying which, which regions, which yeah. asset classes. That then goes down to the selectors who decide which funds within that, and that then gets passed on to the private bank relationship managers who are talking to clients, saying our team recommend fund XYZ and our investment committee recommend more China or more US high yield or whatever it may be. And obviously the client can, or sometimes say, no thanks. <laughs> but it, it, largely they'll be, they'll be influenced by their relationship managers.
1: Although most of the time they're discretionary anyway, they probably don't have to ask.
2: True, true. But the point is these people are, are you know, there's en- a lot of enormously yeah, powerful
3: influences. The, the top of the pyramid, basically. Yeah. yeah, The selection process.
0: That's great. Uh, sort of, we, we, we're gonna wrap up fairly soon, and I, I did ask all my uh, co-panelists to come up with an investment. hero of the first half, uh, I've got one, slightly tongue-in-cheek, and we'll do that uh, after I've heard from my colleagues. start with you, Nisha.
3: Yeah, so we've been talking about emerging markets quite a lot, and my investment hero for H1 is Amutundi Lawal of Bearings. Um, I followed her quite a bit from her the start of her um, career, when we started tracking her in the emerging markets, um, hard currency, debt sector. And, yeah, so two months ago, she received her first A rating, so... She started to become eligible for the analysis um, over the three years. And she's done pretty well. So 20% returns over the year to the end of May. And for a bond fund in emerging markets, that's pretty good. And her drawdowns over that period, just 0.4%. And full full disclosure in your uh, pension fund? No, unfortunately. (laughs) Not at the moment. I, I haven't come to the rebalancing stage just yet.
0: Frank?
1: Yeah, I didn't do my homework, uh, like Nisha, but off the top of my head, you know, someone in the value space, someone like Claire Hart, who works with JP Morgan. She's, I, I guess, after Kathy Wood, the second best known female portfolio manager in the world. She runs US income stock portfolios. She's sort of evergreen, always outperforming. She's got a large following. Outperforming, but not by masses. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not selling the world alive by any means, But in this rotation back towards the value stocks, she's continued to eke out above benchmark returns, and that's the kind of individual you look for. So she's not a hero, and she's not up there in lights, but she's certainly uh, one to consider if you're looking at US income uh, as somewhere to. You own
0: her fund? No, I don't own. Okay, (laughs) Angus. Well,
2: I don't have uh, Frank and Nisha's deep background knowledge of uh, funds and managers, so my investment hero would be anyone who has actually had the courage to stick to their knitting during all the turbulence and, and, and this market volatility that we've seen over the last 18 months. Like your pension. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm obliquely uh, proposing myself as an investment hero. No, I just think that, that, um, that probably the best thing uh, an investment professional could have done for their clients during the period we've been having these, these chats is, is just stay calm and, mm. and stay with a clear uh, a consistent strategy and, and the things we've talked about uh, it, you know obviously the pandemic came out of nowhere but Reddit these kinds of these, these kinds of anomalies that we're seeing everywhere so easily derail people and I think that actually getting overexcited and making unnecessary changes to your strategy or your portfolio is probably the worst thing you could have done.
0: Okay, on to mine, very much tongue-in-cheek. It's the bloke who came from Tass Rabbit, which is the you know, the people you can order someone to do, mix your shelves, do your plumbing, whatever. Anyway, he first came around about 15 months ago to fix up my television, and it needed adjusting, so he came back. So I said, how have things been going? And he said, phenomenal. Of course, you know, everyone's saying those shelves need moving, they're going to improve their house, I'm the man. I've just raked it in this year. And he said, do you know what, I've put all my money in Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, simultaneously, you know, if we all had such certain, you know, he's a hero, if we all had such certainty, but obviously it's ludicrous to have it all in one asset class. And when he came round, Bitcoin was around $55,000. It's now about 34000 He's probably still well ahead on, you know, he's effectively dollar cost averaging, putting his income in through the year. Uh, Honestly, none of you know. We should all we should all have such certainty about how we invest and 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 faith. Well, it's a win-win for you, Richard, because if he loses it all, then he'll come back to you uh,
2: next time and be prepared to work for, for much less money. Because yeah. uh, you know,
0: and if Bitcoin be- doubles, he'll no doubt give up his job and and <laughs> go and live on a Greek island or somewhere. Uh, that's brilliant. Uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. It has been so much fun having uh, Angus, Nisha, Frank, and myself, Richard Lander, I don't think I introduced myself at the beginning, in the studio together, uh, and particularly with our fantastic producers, Peter and Alan, whose birthday it is. So happy birthday, Alan. Thanks. And uh, we're going to take a break for the summer. Uh, so probably back around the beginning of September, who knows what will happened then, who knows what price Bitcoin will be or whether uh, GameStop is like uh, you know 3 times what it is now who knows we'll see then so thank you very much have a great summer holiday and uh, we'll see you back then